0: Welcome to the Sunday morning podcast from Kingdom Faith Church in Worthing. This message is by Colin Squires. Good morning, Worthing and Crawley and everyone who's joining us online this morning. Uh, Let's start by praying, shall we? Father, thank you that you want to speak to us through your word. Thank you that you have got things you want to show us, reveal to us, and good things you want us to live in for your kingdom and your purposes. Jesus, I pray that we would have hearts ready to receive what you want to say to us this morning. And Father, I pray that anything that are just my words, they would fall to the ground. Jesus, speak your words this morning by your Spirit, in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever had this thought that if you could just buy that thing, Or if you could just earn that bit more, life would be better. Life would be sweeter. Life would be happier. I can remember having that very thought myself. It was uh, a few years ago and I found myself daydreaming about the Morphe Richards Sauté and Soup Maker. Yep, I am that exciting a man. And uh, I probably not a coincidence that it coincides with the time that we were doing some prayer and fasting. So I was thinking about food a lot. And I saw this advert for a soup maker and it said that you could just chop up some veg, throw it in, it would saute it for you, caramelize it, get all the flavors out. And then with a bit of water in there, leave it for 28 minutes and it would come out with perfect creamy, delicious soup. And so saved up the pennies and I went out and bought the soup maker. And as maybe some of you are thinking like, that doesn't sound that exciting before you've bought it. For me, the excitement didn't wear off until I actually used it. And I found that this soup maker just made bad soup slightly quicker than I could make great soup the standard way. And, uh, and realized that this, this promise of your life will be quicker, it will be easier, it will be more delicious, actually was a load of rubbish. It was not that great. And of course, though I did use it a handful of times, it mostly lived at the back of a cupboard, gathering dust and sometimes mold if I hadn't quite cleaned it up particularly well. And actually, it ended up taking more of my time because there were so many little bits awkward to clean and wash up and dry and you couldn't get that electric bit wet. It was actually worse than if I had never bought it in the first place. Now I'm sure the mature Christians among you would never give in to impulse buying or uh, or uh, buyer's remorse or going out for a little bit of uh, a bit of shopping um, just to make yourself feel better, a bit of retail therapy. Of course not. Um, But most of us at some point have done that where we have thought this thing that we could buy, this will make my life better, only to find that it didn't really live up to expectations. In the 1950s, Fred Whitman, a wealthy San Franciscan, uh, coined the phrase affluenza, that malaise that comes from having wealth but it not actually bringing you happiness, trying to chase after the dream of a bit more to satisfy and never really finding it. Jesus summed it up like this, life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. As disciples of Jesus, we're called to live like him, right? Of course. That's why we're starting over these next few weeks, this series on stewarding. Now, I know what you're thinking, but Colin, haven't we over the last few weeks been talking about worship and uh, about what God wants to do in our hearts and following him? Yes, absolutely. Which is why we're talking about stewardship because Jesus knew that there was nothing that could more change the course of our hearts from a focus on God to a focus on anything else than money and possessions. Uh, For Jesus, this is all about the heart. In fact, he said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Is our treasure, is, the, is our heart in worldly things and stuff and money or is it on kingdom things? I like the way that Saint Augustine, one of the early church fathers put it. He said this, God is always trying to give good things to us but our hands are too full to receive them. If we want our hearts to be solely focused on Jesus and to give him space to do what he wants to do in and through us, we need to guard our hearts fiercely against the temptation to look for fulfillment in other things. We live, don't we know this, right? We live in a culture that is addicted to accumulation. In 1928, the American journalist Robert Quinlan described materialism like this, buying things we don't need with money we don't have to impress people we don't like. But even though we know this to be true, even though we know deep down that stuff won't satisfy us, we still buy more and more of it. In the West, we have just so much stuff. In 2018, Hiscox Insurance Company estimated that the average UK home has 47,000 items. Other estimates put this figure as high as 300,000. The average Brit currently owns 118 items of clothing, 26% unworn for at least a year. (laughs) None of us, right? (laughs) None of us have got that ski jacket in the back of the cupboard that we never wear. There are so many unworn or unused shoes in British households, just British households, that put heel to toe, they would go once around the world. That's 24,901 miles along the equator, or on average, seven pairs of unwanted and unworn shoes per person. In the UK, one study found that children have on average 238 toys, but only play with 12 of them on a daily basis. Or in monetary terms, 7,000 pounds worth of toys, but only play with 330 pounds worth. 3.1% of the world's children live in America, but they own 40% of the toys consumed globally. The average American woman, I'm sorry I couldn't find a UK stat, but I imagine it would be uh, likely to be very similar, owns 30 outfits one for every day of the month. In 1930, that figure was just nine. And what did Jesus say? Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. Now, I am painfully aware that we're in the midst of a cost of living crisis. And you might be saying, Colin, I am not thinking about what golf club could I buy next to satisfy me? I'm just thinking about how am I gonna get food on the table and my rent paid on time? If that is you, I wanna encourage you to please bear with me because I believe that it's important that we look at this regardless, in part because I believe this might be part of God's solution to that problem. That if those of us who have more than enough learn to live out what God leads us to live out, then that problem of lack will be addressed within and through God's means in the church. And secondly, this message is not actually about stuff. How much we have, how much we need, how much, how legitimate is that? This is actually a message about our hearts, our hearts response to our needs, to our sense of security and to our stuff and how much we have or how much we want. Where do we look for our security, fulfillment and satisfaction? Is it to God or things? If it's things, we'll never be satisfied. The famous oil tycoon, John Rockefeller, I've been to the Rockefeller Center in New York, once said, when asked, how much money is enough? Just a little bit more. Google Ngram, a software that that tracks the frequency in words and phrases in publications, shows that the use of the phrase, you deserve, more than tripled from 1970 to 2008. In the New York Times, the phrase appeared more than four times more often in 2018 as it did in 1981. The world is telling us it's all about me, about us, about you, what we want, what we need, what we deserve. And if we have just a little bit more of it, we will be safe, secure and happy. Jesus, however warns against this. He says this is just not having an emotional impact on us, but a deeply spiritual one too. He said the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth, or as the Amplified puts it, the deceitfulness of the false security of wealth and the desires for other things come in and choke the word, the word of God, making it unfruitful. So experience tells us that that more stuff won't satisfy us. Jesus tells us that more stuff won't satisfy us. So where can we find satisfaction? Jesus turned the hedonistic pursuit of wealth and materialism on its head when he said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Now, I think this is so interesting. The Greek word for blessed is makarios. And as Dr. E. Randolph Richards puts it, makarios is a word that we don't have in English. It's a word that the Greeks had for that feeling you have when you're happy. It is a feeling of contentment when you know your place in the world and are satisfied with that place. If your life has been fortunate, you should feel makarios. We use idioms in English to try and approximate this experience. We'll say, my life has really come together, or I'm in a happy place, or life has been good to me. We're not really discussing the details of our life. We're trying to describe a feeling that we have. Happy sounds trite, so we avoid it. Actually, we are makarios. Since English doesn't have a word for this feeling, translators have struggled to find one. What do you call it when you feel happy, content, balanced, harmonious, and fortunate? Well, translators have concluded you are blessed. And if when we're reading this in scripture, realizing that when the Bible says blessed, it's talking about this sense of living right, of knowing your place, of contentment. So this isn't saying, if you give, God will give bless you, some spiritual magic feeling. Jesus is saying the way to live a life that is fulfilled, that is to its full, that is happy, is to live God's way. And that way is to give. It is more blessed, more macarius happier to give than to receive. Jesus, of course, wants to bless us. He is good. He is so good. He's a The Father, our Father, Heavenly Father, is a good Father who gives good gifts to his children. And sometimes he might want to bless us with those tickets to that football game or with the new golf clubs or the new car. And we praise God for those things. But the blessed life is a lifestyle where we are learning to give. We are happier when we give than when we get. Matthew 6, 19 to 20, Jesus said, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. So we want to look then if this is that secret to living this good life that is pleasing to God and and living his way, that Jesus-following disciple life. What are these treasures in heaven and how do we store them up? Number one, most importantly, generosity. We probably know the story when the rich man came to Jesus, the rich ruler came to Jesus and and was asking, what what have I got to do to see heaven? What have I got to do uh, to be saved? And Jesus says to him, sell everything you have and give to the poor and you'll have treasures in heaven. There's that treasure in heaven phrase again. Now, sell everything is in the, is a bit of a Greek study here, is in the aorist present active tense. So meaning, sorry, aorist active tense, which means that it's not a single one off act, but a continuous and ongoing one. Jesus isn't saying that in order to follow him, this rich man must give everything away in one moment and be destitute and poor. He's saying you must now live a lifestyle that's not about seeking more and more wealth, but is about one that seeks to give, to be generous, to bless, to give away. It's a change in our heart and our motivation and our priorities, not pursuing more and more wealth, but pursuing generosity, charity, and giving. If you've got your Bible, let's turn to 1 Timothy chapter six, verses five to 19. To give you a bit of context here, the apostle Paul is writing to Timothy. Um, Timothy was leading the church in Ephesus at the time. And uh, Paul is writing about these false teachers who, uh, it says, think that godliness is a means to financial gain. In all likelihood, they were probably preaching just to get offerings, or they were telling people what they wanted to hear in order to take ministry offerings and things like that. And they saw that this godliness or form of godliness was a, a means to financial gain. They were abusing their position. Maybe for us, an application of this might be the idea of the prosperity gospel, which to take it to its kind of furthest conclusion is to basically say, God, I'm just going to pray that you give me more money and stuff because you love me and you want to bless me. That's the whole of it. You just want to give me more. Now, God does love to lavish his goodness upon us. He does love to give, but the prosperity gospel kind of boils it down to just that. And uh, and there's so much more to the gospel and the good news of Jesus and the blessed life than just more stuff, as we shall see. Paul then contrasts this line that, these, these people who thought that godliness was a means to financial gain by saying, but godliness with contentment is great gain. He's saying you don't need godliness to try and get more stuff. Just the godliness itself is the gain. That's what we should be seeking after. Goes on to say, for we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we'll be content with that. So godliness and contentment or godliness with food and clothing, just meeting our needs, we'll be content with that. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm not sure how content with that I would be. Certainly living in Britain, if I had just food and clothing for probably about 10 to 11 months of the year, I might also want to add shelter to that list. Otherwise, I'm going to be a little bit too cold. But even if we add shelter, food, clothing and shelter, we'd be content with that. Would you be content with that? I know that I would find that really difficult. be content with that. So how has Paul become content? If we were to turn over to Philippians chapter 4, he tells us, I have learned to be content, whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in every, in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do everything through him who gives me strength. The secret then to contentment is the through him bit. In God, through Christ, putting God first. Jesus himself said, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, put the God bit first and all of the other stuff that we need will be added to us. We'll find that contentment in all that we need when we seek God first. Paul is also, I think, showing us here that our assessment of God's love for us must never be in how rich we are or how much stuff that we have, he has provided for us or not. Otherwise, you might think, well, if I've got a million pounds in the bank, I'm blessed, I'm loved. But if I'm struggling to make ends meet, God's forgotten me. Our estimation of his love is not rooted in our material well-being. It is rooted firmly in what Jesus has done for us. John 3.16, of course, does not say, for God so loved the world, he gave everyone a new iPad. We know God loves us because of what he did for us in Jesus dying for us. Let's flick back over to 1 Timothy. It goes on to say in verse nine, those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered off from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. This is probably one of the most misquoted verses of the Bible. We've probably all heard it. Money is the root of all evil. It's not actually what the Bible says. It says the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Still not great though. But it's this understanding that if we're to make money an idol, that is the ultimate aim of our lives, then it will pierce us with grief. It will bring anxiety. It will bring, bring, bring pain and destruction. And it leads to a root to evil greed, pride, envy, lust. But you, Paul goes on to say, man of God and woman of God, verse 11, flee from all of this and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance and gentleness or treasures in heaven. Fight the good fight of faith Take hold of the eternal life to which you are called. Now, notice here it says, Fight the good fight. This is not something that's going to come passively. Where if we just live as a Christian long enough, we're just going to magically become wonderfully generous people. No, our hearts are deceitful above all things. Our heart will just keep seeking after the things of the world and our flesh. We have to fight against the culture, against what the devil, the devil's lies and temptations, and we pursue God and say, no, I want to actively see this change. This is what being a a disciple is, being disciplined, self-disciplined, that fruit of the Holy Spirit to pursue God and be transformed into his likeness. We're to flee this then. Paul then goes on, uh, he then talks about uh, what it means just to be in Christ and how all this is part of living in Christ and honouring God. And then we move on to verse 17. He says, command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God. Now, in the church in Ephesus where uh, where Timothy was, where Paul was writing to, uh, there were lots of wealthy people. Um, already in possession of gold and rank. And it's interesting here that Paul doesn't say command the rich to sell everything, but just not to trust in their wealth. Charles Ellicott, a 19th century theologian, in his commentary put it this way, the wish to be rich was a sure root of error and of evil, but the being rich was a very different thing. This class was surrounded with special perils, but still, even as rich, they might serve God faithfully. So in his charge to them, he commands them not to strip themselves of their wealth, but to use it wisely, generously. It is, of course, about heart, our heart motivation. life. So what can we learn from these verses about our attitudes and approaches to wealth, money and materialism? Number one is not to be arrogant. Self-sufficiency or an attitude of I made it on my own is a Western virtue but it is not a biblical one. Biblically our trust should be in God. 1 Corinthians 4 7 says what do you have that God hasn't given you? And if everything that you have is from God, why boast as though it were not a gift? Our response should be, thank you, Lord, for everything that I have. It is all yours and you've given it to me. We are stewards, not really owners, of the things that we have. The second thing we can learn then is that money is uncertain. When the pandemic hit, Sir Richard Branson almost lost everything. Everything. Thanks to financial support from businesses and shareholders, he managed to keep the Virgin Group afloat, but still it cost him a staggering 1.5 billion pounds personally. I don't know about you, I'm not sure I could afford to quite lose 1.5 billion pounds. But we can trust that though money is, is uncertain, God is certain we can trust that he will certainly provide for us everything that we need. We can put our hope and our trust in him. The third thing we learn is that God is not a killjoy. He is so kind and so good and generous and has given us so much. He lavishly blesses us and gives to us. And it is for, it says here, our enjoyment. Our attitude then to what we do have should be thanksgiving. This verse is not saying we we need to be miserable in order to follow God. We need to be poor. We need to be cold and shivering and hungry to follow God. That is not what it says. God has blessed us with so much for our enjoyment. But here's the key. If what we have leads us to just want more, our heart is being enslaved to mammon, to this, this spirit of have more, have more, have more money. More will satisfy you. However, if the things that God has blessed us with, we don't see as our own, but as God's good gifts to us. They inspire us to turn our attention and our praise back to him. We can say, thank you, Jesus, that you have blessed me. And the fourth thing that we understand from these verses is that we can store up treasure in heaven through doing good and being generous. We're going to look more about that treasure in heaven bit to come but more on generosity and on our response to this later. But briefly, Paul here, you may have noticed, was addressing those who are rich in this present age. Now, since rich doesn't come with a number attached, it's easy to always to to think of this as being someone else. I don't know about you, but I certainly don't consider myself as a rich man. I wouldn't say that I am rich by any stretch of the imagination. But... If we were to take a hundred people here and line them up, representing everybody in the world, where do you think you would be? 70th, 60th, 50th? Where do you think you might be out of the hundred people representing all of the wealth in the whole world? To put a bit of perspective on this, if you earn the average UK income each year, you would be between the second and third person of that hundred. The second to third wealthiest person in the world if you earn the average UK income. If your income is lower then you're, and even if you're, if you're on a minimum wage, you're still in the top 15. If you have a car, a roof over your head, maybe a smartphone, we're likely to be in the top single figures in the world, in this present age. Now, I'm pleased, I'm really, I'm not trying to say, so therefore if you're struggling financially or things are really difficult at the moment, get over it, you're second in the world overall. That is not what I'm trying to say at all. What I'm trying to say is that though those needs are legitimate, it's important that we realize that this isn't God talking to someone else, he's talking to us. Who in this present age are the rich? We are. If you'd like to see where you rank individually or as a family, you can head over to www.givingwhatwecan.org and see if you put in your income, where do I fit in with the world? And what would happen in the world if I gave away a little bit more of my income? So what might our response be? What can we do to direct our hearts away from the world, and this idea of getting more and more and more and just trying to find satisfaction that will never come and more towards Jesus. How do we direct our heart from seeking to build up treasure on earth to treasure in heaven? And I wanted to make this really practical today, that this isn't just a prayer response in a moment with thank you, Jesus. Oh, that's, that's great. And then we go about living our lives the same way. But this changes the way that we budget, the way that we shop, the way that we live, the way we give. And so this is going to be, uh, a response to this message is going to be more than right now. This is going to be in the coming days and weeks and months and even become a lifestyle as we seek to live this way, seeking after God and his goodness for the rest of our lives. So what can we do then? Number one, practice gratitude. Could we decide to step off the treadmill of the world of needing to buy more, have more, store up more and a desire for what we don't have and move towards simplicity, satisfaction and thankfulness for what we do have? Hebrews 13.5 says, keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. The second thing might be live simpler with less. Let me ask you this. How much of our time, care, attention, money, thought is spent on the upkeep, organization, storage and security of our stuff? Could we free up time, headspace, money and spiritual real estate in our souls by getting rid of some of the things that we don't need. Now, this, by the way, is not about replacing one idol with another, of not replacing this idol of materialism with an idol of minimalism, of, of a pride in our asceticism of, hey, everyone, look at me and look how I've managed to get rid of everything and I, and I live so minimalistically. Of course, that, that's not gonna be very helpful. Um, narrow is the road that Jesus wants to walk on and on one side is materialism on one side is that sort of prideful um, minimalism. We wanna walk down the middle of it, down that narrow road following after Jesus. But could we go on a journey of decluttering, of sorting out the stuff that we actually need or is beautiful or inspires us to worship or takes us towards God and get rid of some of the stuff that just takes up space and time in our hearts and our souls? What would it look like for you as maybe an individual, as a family, to go through your home, room by room, maybe start with an easy room that's not got too much stuff in it and work out what you actually need, what you see is beautiful and stirs up thankfulness and look at giving the rest away or selling it or donating it to charity. Oxfam said an average bag of donated stuff like clothes, books, music, DVDs and homewares can raise enough money to help two vulnerable families buy desperately needed food in an emergency or buy five buckets specially designed to keep water clean and disease free. Kate and I have been doing this for a while now in our home, trying to just get rid of the stuff we don't need. And it's been really great on one side, just... It's been freeing up heart space and head space, but also it's been startling to realize just how much stuff we have, we didn't know we had. And we would say we're probably fairly minimalistic. We like to live a fairly simple life and yet we have so much stuff. So we've been giving it away, we've been selling it, we've been donating it to charity, just clearing it out and then just finding there's more and more and more. This is a response of weeks, I think, if not months. But those boxes that we've got in the loft, that we brought to the new place from the old place and we've never unpacked, why do we hold on to some of this stuff? So choose a room. I would encourage you to go through it. Find the things that you have and ask God, God, is this something I need? Or is this something I can give away or bless somebody with? By need, it might be, this thing just inspires me, it's beautiful and thank you for it, it's great, it's got sentimental value. Those are all legitimate. Those are all really, really, really important things as well to consider. But if there's something you're not sure about, maybe bag it up and put it somewhere else, out of sight, out of mind for a couple of months and then come back to it. Just, we're not living about our stuff, thinking what more do I need to fill up my storehouses all the more? I want to ask you, where might you start in this clear out? What would be the hardest room to do that in and why? How do you think you would feel getting rid of the things that you don't really need? And what effect do you think it could have on you emotionally and spiritually if you were to have a bit of a clear out? Incidentally, psychologists have found uh, that the more clutter you have in your house, the worse you sleep. Interesting um, correlation there. Third thing is limiting ourselves, self-discipline, which is a fruit of the spirit. Avoiding getting more unnecessary stuff to have to clear out at some point in the future. When you see something you want, could you ask God if it's going to be a good thing for you to have at this time? Could you create space between seeing the thing that you want and when you actually buy it? Avoiding impulse decisions, things like Black Friday, stuff like that, deals, and actually thinking, is this something I need right now? Give yourself 72 hours or a week before you decide to actually part with cash. You might want to consider accountability in spending over a certain amount, maybe whatever that might be for you. That might be in your small group or with your prayer triplet to say, hey, I'm thinking of spending this money. Do you think this is wise? Just help me make that decision, share that decision-making with people that you trust. Plan your shopping trips. If it's not on the list, don't buy it. This is that self-discipline of, remember, fight the good fight. You might think this sounds a bit severe, Colin, but we need to do these things to train ourselves to pursue heavenly riches and not to just stay on this treadmill of more stuff. Do you spend time scrolling through Pinterest or Facebook or Instagram? If I had those sunglasses, if I had that T-shirt, if I was on that holiday, I would be happy. Maybe it's time to fast a bit from those things and give yourself some space to look at the life that God is calling you to live, rather than the lie of the life that other people are living through social media. And lastly, recommend be careful of collections. Wanting to complete the collection is a big reason to spend more money than you would normally, just because you need that one missing piece, which can be a bit of a microcosm of the desire to find that missing piece in our lives as a whole. Fourthly then, tithing. Tithing is like a safety valve for our souls that God has put in place for our good, that can help release the pressure to put all our attention and trust in ourselves. Instead of I deserve, it points our hearts to God deserves. We're going to look at tithing much more depth in much more depth next week. Fifth is repentance. To just come and say, God, forgive me for putting this thing first as ultimate, as an idol. Jesus, I want to tear this thing down, this thinking that has raised itself up against the knowledge of God, tear it down and Jesus, I come back to you seeking your way as your disciple, your apprentice, seeking the life that you've called me to live. And lastly, then storing up real treasure. R. Kent Hughes uh, put it this way in his book *Disciplines of a Godly Man*: the key to liberation from the power of materialism is not an exodus from culture, abandoning Wall Street or leaving the wealth of the nation to others, but the grace of giving. Givers for God disarm the power of money. They invite God's grace to flow through them. God calls us to generosity. And we can be generous in many ways. We can be generous with our time, with our stuff, with our finances, with our home. You know, we've spent the first few, uh, couple of months of this year talking about sharing our lives, our faith and sharing Jesus with others. Can we do this practically through generosity, opening our homes and our wallets to others? Could you open maybe a new bank account as a blessing fund? cancelling a TV subscription or that gym subscription that you never use or whatever it might be, and instead putting the money in a fund, not to save up for a holiday or for a rainy day for ourselves, but to save up so that when someone uh, comes across our path that has a need, we go, yeah, I've got the money there that I've been saving to, to supply for that need. Generosity is a spiritual discipline. It's not just something that we can do when we feel like it, or even sometimes when we have the means, it's something God causes us to live. We read about the widow who put all that she had in her, the widow's might into the offering, giving all that she had. Generosity is not about amount. It's not even about how much it, it costs us. It's a lifestyle of discipline, of just choosing to do it day in, day out. Could you perhaps pray as a family or as an individual about who you could give to or maybe a missionary that you, should, you could support or a charity you could donate to. Is there someone in a church that you could bless? Once we understand that God calls us as stewards and not owners of our stuff, that he, tr- he truly is the owner of everything we have and for our lives to belong to him, then it becomes much easier to live with open hands and to be a generous people. When we own our stuff, we live with clenched fists. But when we know it's God's anyway, we live with open hands. We want to be able to answer this age-old question. Do we own our things or do our things own us? With an answer. People whose treasure is in heaven cannot be owned by their possessions. Let's just pray. Jesus, thank you that you're making us a giving people teach us how to live like you, the life that you have got for us. Jesus, to sacrifice and lay down everything that we have for you and your kingdom, to seek your kingdom first and for everything else to come after that. Jesus, help make us a generous people that meet one another's needs. Jesus, help us be your hands and your feet on earth. And Lord, let our hearts be focused on treasure in heaven, on righteousness, on godliness. And thank you, Jesus, that as we do, as we live that way, we find that we are blessed, we're content, we're happy. Thank you, Jesus, that your way is the only way and the way of life in its fullness. In Jesus' name. Amen. Now, if you're struggling at the moment uh, to make ends meet, please speak to one of your congregation leaders and let us know so we can help meet that need so that as a church if we know the need is there we can help meet it all together. And remember that the the response this morning is not going to be in just a quick prayer right now, it's going to be having the conversation when you get home with your partner or with your family, it's going to be the conversation you have with God, it's going to be through the packing things up and giving away, it's going to be through the opening the bank account, it's going to be through the practical doing as we live out this life as disciples of Jesus every day.